Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Nina Lewis-Hart. Nina is the Principal of the Platinum Academy of Performing Arts in London. Nina, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. It's our pleasure, Nina. Now, the um, purpose of this discussion is to really ascertain your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say that leadership is something that's really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different business leaders having to feel their way through this unprecedented crisis. And the same goes for governments as well. We will touch on that later, of course. But if we just first and foremost look at that word leader, just in isolation, what does that word actually mean to you, Nina, and how does it resonate? I think um, thinking of the word leadership and leader is guidance. It's um, feeling that you're being guided and that you have a support network, um, that you've got a leader that is leading that support network, leading the vision of how you make decisions, especially in the situation that we're in now, because it happened on, on, you know, it happened so suddenly that, you know, we have plans in any business, in any community group, we have plans and visions and we plan so far ahead with this happening, all, um, everything had to change from, you know, staff, from what we do with our young people, from what we focused on, all our plans. So we had to really structure on the, you know, the team and the leadership team and myself being the leader of our, our, you know, our vessel, as I call it, it's it's really important to have those visions that you can change and work under pressure and when there is things being changed, really. And there's been a great deal of pressure on leaders at the moment, hasn't there, in the wake of the COVID crisis to provide some much needed reassurance to those around them. And that can be quite difficult just sort of keeping the communication channels open in that sense when there's so much uncertainty and maybe those running businesses don't necessarily know that much more than um, those around them, given the talk that we've had about clarity. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, I think a lot of people are very confused and are still very confused on what you can and can't do. Um, When when this first happened, it was the whole thing, you know, the industry we're in, um, the performing arts industry, everybody's... um, Basically, most of us are self-employed. All of our artists are self-employed. Our teachers are self-employed. So that was a really big hit at the beginning because everyone was very unsure of what was going on. And so, as, as we said, as a leader, we need to be able, you know, we, were, we had to make sure we were reassuring everybody that we were doing everything that we could do and researching everything that we could research to then pass on the information to all our staff um, and all our students. Um, because you know, especially with something that we do, it's it's like a school, but a part-time school where a lot of young people find it their safe haven. Um, so not only was their school ripped from them, their um, you know their other safety networks were ripped from them as well. So as a leader, not only were we worrying about our staff and our our team around us, it was the young people. For, especially for me, it was the effect that this was going to have on, uh, on on young people and how they would cope with everything going on. While we're speaking of uh, young people, um, routine is very, very important, isn't it? And there's been a renewed focus on mental health and well-being in particular during this time. And 
we've heard this week, just for the benefit of those listening to this, um, we are recording this episode on June the 10th, 2020. So news has recently emerged that from Monday, June the 15th, there will be a reopening of all non-essential shops as well as zoos, safari parks and outdoor cinemas. So there'll be more for youngsters to go out and do. But one thing that the government has U-turned on, as you'll well know, Nina, is its ambitions to reopen schools before the summer break. Um, All primary schools um, years are now not going to be returning by that time and secondary schools are probably not going to be expected to be returning until September at the very earliest. So what are your thoughts on that personally and how that's going to affect young people? I think personally, if if we're opening theme parks and we're opening cinemas and we're opening um, all these sorts of things, I just feel that the young people now need that sense of um, security to be able to be going back into school. And I totally understand that we haven't got the facilities to do that, but this is something that should have been put in place. You know, knowing that you've got, I don't know, a thousand children in a school and saying that we're going to get everybody back and not even thinking that if you're, you know, if you're doing 15 in a classroom, we're going to have to double the classroom. So think about putting marquees out into the playground. Think about putting marquees out into the field. You've got, you know, or temporary classrooms. You've announced that you're going to open, and then they backtracked and said they wasn't going to open. So, again, the children are very uncertain. And, yes, it's great that cinemas and things like that are going to open, but things like ourselves, studios, um, fitness centres, dance studios, drama studios, all of these things have not been given any inkling of when we would be opening. Theatres, we don't know what's happening. Um, and they're the things that the children do, like gymnastics, on a weekly basis. Is there routine? So there's no routine. School is not a routine anymore. Their after-school clubs is not a routine anymore. Anything recreational, there's no routine. And these young people have been, you know, in their houses for 12 weeks. Uh, you know, I've been talking to a lot of parents, working with a lot of organisations that young people are really going to struggle going back into the community and just, you know, getting used to normal things again. There's a lot of young people that don't even want to go out of their houses at the moment because they're scared. You you know, it's it, it, one day they were at school and the next day they heard there was a, you know, world epidemic and no one can leave their house. They're only young children and it's it's really hard. They need structure. And, and part of their developmental skills is human contact. And they've missed a whole chunk of that. Mm. And we don't know when they're going to be getting that back. I think it's something along the lines of 40% of class hours are going to be lost this year, according to um, sort of official estimates. So that's staggering in and of itself for starters. I mean, children losing out on education as well as that contact time with their peers as well. Incredibly important, as you rightfully say there, Nina. Just moving um, the focus over from children to sort of adults for a second. How have the staff at the Platinum Academy adjusted themselves to this current pandemic? And the reason I ask that is because um, we've heard some fantastic stories of people really going above and beyond during this time to sort of keep things ticking over, whether they've had to adjust to remote working, whether they've had to continue to work under new safety yeah. procedures so how's that been uh, for you okay so with our um we've got a team of, of 20 teachers and um we when it all first happened we all sat down together and we said right okay there's no revenue coming into the company now so we need to all stick together to make sure there is a company to come back to really because we're a non-profit organization so all we generate goes back into the community within staff um, and events that we put on for our young people. So um, I'm very lucky to have a very good team around me and um, we all work around the, 
the same ethos, which is the community and making a better life for young people. So we all decided that we would we would uh, put all our skills and go on to online sessions. So from the second week of when we closed down from the COVID, um, we put everything online. So on Saturdays, we run online sessions for four hours. So we do for the young people singing drama and dance. And on Sundays, we do the same. So depending on which age they are, they'll go. Um, our, our staff um, was doing it for goodwill for a good amount of time, for about eight weeks. Um, and then we managed to source um, a little bit of funding. So they've taken, rather than saying what they usually get, £30 an hour, they've taken a pay cut and they're just taking like £10 an hour just so obviously that's just giving them something just for their time. Um, so they're putting their time and, you know, their lesson plans and everything um, down to goodwill, really. And I couldn't wish for a better team, to be honest with you, because if it wasn't for them, our young people would not be receiving what they're receiving at the moment um, because it just wouldn't be possible. We, we wouldn't have the funds to be able to do that. Mm. I think that's certainly going to be um, an issue uh, going forward for sure. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because the new normal is certainly going to change the way that we fundamentally operate, especially um, organisations in this industry like uh, your own, uh, Nina. And do you think that sort of under that sort of new norm, there's going to be more of an emphasis on the online side of things? Because it seems as if with social distancing in place, there will be some limits on capacity. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, we've looked at it and the online for me, it doesn't, feel um, authentic in what we do. We're performing arts and part of performing arts is building confidence, being able to communicate with others, being able to use our body to express our body language and, mm. you know, um, dance is a way that we express through our body and it's all very, very tactile. So for me, um, it, I would rather have 10 in a class than 30, put more classes on. Um, we've even started looking at Marquees, because we've got where we where we hire our premises in the Hillfield Theatre. There's grounds, there's outside grounds there. So we've we've spoken about putting marquees out um, and having smaller classrooms as such to make sure those young people can still have contact with their friends, even if it isn't social distancing. Um, we've even researched and having social distancing, um, you know, weekly evening classes and even how we would do outside theatre workshops and stuff like that. I just think for me, because I, I observe every class that's online with my, um, with my teachers, and I just feel young people are not reacting how they should be and how they would be if it was done in an authentic setting. And that's just my personal opinion. Obviously, it's better than nothing, and at least they've got some contact. But we've had a lot of parents contact us and saying the kids, that you know, the young children are going into themselves. They feel like they're not good enough anymore. They can't because there's so many issues on, on online. You've, you know, you've got... You can't speak to, not everyone can talk at the same time. It's like you, you, you know, it's a teacher talking and a young person talking. You only end up hearing one. You get all the, it's just, there's a lot of other issues with that. And, and for me, getting back into that classroom, even if it is with 15 or 10 or five students, we will put on more classes to make sure that happens. And that's something that we've spoken about and we're definitely going to do. I mean, and, and, you know, going back to what you said about people going over and beyond, 
we we've done um you know we're running a project called power to make a change at the moment and that was a you know really big thing that we were going on with like anti-knife crime and working with um working with uh teenagers from all around enfield and that was a really big hit when that stopped so what we did and our staff did is you know we did 41 to 1 sessions um with each student to make sure that they were keeping on that straight and narrow path. And, and that was staff putting their own time out as well. So, you know, we, we put a project out called It's Okay Not To Be Okay. And we just literally put it out to the community and anyone that wanted an online session, even if it was just a chat with one of our teachers, even if it was just a chat with myself, um, you know, we had a lot of young people that are going to colleges, are going to university that are, you know, starting West End shows and, you know, they, they studied you know, for 10 years to do this, and they've just got their first jobs in the West End shows, and, and now that's not going to happen for them. So it's that, it's that other, you know, just not the young people, it's the young adults as well that are really struggling now as well. It is exactly right. And um, it, there's going, if we do maintain this uh, focus, and I hope we do on mental health and well-being as we move through the uh, the pandemic and look toward the new normal, then these are issues that really do need to be addressed um, for sure. Um, if we think about what the future um, sort of now holds, um, Nina, for yourself and for the um, the academy as a whole, what do you actually hope to achieve over the, uh, the next uh, 12 months, do you think? I mean, with the next year, I mean, we're launching, um, I mean, we're a part-time school at the moment, and in September, we're launching a full-time college, um, which is a 16-plus college, uh, running a uh, rock school qualification, pre-degree qualification. And for us, our main focus is to make sure those young people that had registered with us before the pandemic, that we find funding for them, because we've had a lot of them that the parents have lost their jobs. Um, the, you know, my focus in and our team focus in is finding funding for them to be able to still start that course that they have registered for and was accepted the place for, but now have not got the funds for. Um, as well, we need to make sure that even at the part-time school that we've found, you know, we've, we've already actually got some funding to make sure that if there's parents that, for whatever reason, their income has dropped or they've lost their job, that those children can still attend Platinum at the weekend so that, you know, that that's not taken away from them. That is my main concern is that we keep the children that we've got and anybody else that will benefit from coming to somewhere like a uh, performing arts school that we can accommodate them and that the funds are not a barrier. That is that is one of our biggest things because, as you said, the well-being of young people now and the mental health and, and everything like that is so important. And the way that one of the ways that we deal with that is to make sure that we, you know, create fun and create happiness and, and being able to express ourselves. And yes, this has been a very, very bad time, but this has made history and our young people need to understand they're part of this history. So mm. whatever is going on now, you know, yes, it's, it's not been nice, but let's focus maybe. And another thing that we want to focus on and we'll do pieces on and we will write stories on when we get back and bring this to life is the fact that, you know, some of us, don't spend time with our family. Some of us don't have the chance to have dinner on a table with our family because our families are so busy working all the time, even to be honest myself, you know, so let's take, if we can, anything good out of it is the fact that, you know, the pause button has been put on and let's reboot and then let's all go back positive and, you know, fresh and let's just make this a better place basically and just all unite together. And that's, that's what we can take this is that we have to unite together to, to get through this. 
Mm. And let's hope we certainly do, Nina, for sure. I've got to say, I mean, it's been an incredibly um, inspiring and insightful experience having you on the uh, the programme with us as well as an absolute pleasure. And it's a shame we are just about out of time. Otherwise, we could discuss these issues long into the night. I'm absolutely sure of that. Um, I think, you know, it would actually be fantastic um, having raised these issues today to revisit this in the next few months and just look how some of those hopes are being borne out and even look at the, at that point oh, yeah, how the Academy is getting on as well. I think that would be really good for the listeners' point of view yeah brilliant and that would be lovely i'd love that and then we you know hopefully we've we've moved on from where we are and i can you know give you some good news and let you know you know where we are at that point i think that would be really lovely if you followed that journey with us let's certainly hope there will be some positive news to share nina and most importantly in the meantime do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet yeah and yourself thank you so much That was Nina Lewis-Hart speaking, the principal of the Platinum Academy of Performing Arts. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Sir Andrew, a former England cricket captain, is currently director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board. During his days as skipper, however, he became one of only three England captains to have secured the Ashes both at home and away in Australia, so part of a very illustrious club. And he also racked up enough test victories to become the second highest test victory holding captain in England's history. That is quite impressive. Coming up next on the programme is that interview and I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Andrew. And that's coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career. Full stop. And um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity, and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets, and there was my chance, and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to? see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, 
literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years i went god charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising i haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and i went well join the club you know and i think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was number one drawing that game at the oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd 
broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. for, for Absolutely. Everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch. Uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become focal point of criticism uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong especially when the going gets tough you become a leader in many senses of the word uh, during your time as captain what qualities does one require to fulfill that role ha. um well a fair amount of resilience for starters mm. you know you're absolutely right you, you know I, I remember when I, I got the role it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. 
and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have, and I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage 
some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh cancer anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. 
you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but 
in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and we'll be moving towards the IPL. And those are, those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.